go through all of this, the emphasis is, is that we, we want to keep in the forefront of our mind that this is God desiring. He is the initiator of having a relationship with man. Remember, it's God who came to Moses. It's God who came to Abraham going way back. It's God coming to Adam in the Garden of Eden. We see that it's God's desire to have fellowship uh, with mankind. And so now uh, that the 12 tribes of Israel, there's going to be three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. Um, And uh, God is going to dwell. He's going to have this tabernacle placed right in the midst of the people so that, um, because that's where he wants to be with his people. He says, this is where I'm going to dwell with you. By the way, I I meant to look this up, but I think we can just go ahead and pull it. Turn to John chapter one with me in case I haven't hit this yet. I want to make sure that we don't get there too fast. I think it's First John. Isn't that what I said? Uh, I don't know. Terribly embarrassed. Okay, John chapter 1. Is that what I said? Okay. John chapter 1, verse 14. Good job. You've been around a decade. You know how we roll here. Kudos for finding 1 John and John chapter 1. It could be very confusing. John 1, 14. And the word, who's the word? Jesus is the word of God. Uh, we know that because if you look up in verse one of that chapter, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, he, meaning Jesus, was with God in the beginning. So verse 14 says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that word dwelling, guess what? Anybody know what word that, that is? the same word as tabernacle. So it would read it like this in the Greek. The word became flesh. Well, if I were speaking Greek, this would be the Greek interpretation. The word became flesh and made his tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. So now we're studying. What are we studying in the Old Testament? We're studying the tabernacle. And now we're seeing that that is a picture. It's a uh, picture of, um, of, uh, of God's plan of salvation. It's, it has a whole redemptive plan right there sewn, into, uh, sewn in and melted together and fashioned all together of God's desire to have relationship with mankind. We're going to see that some 1,500 years later after the tabernacle is constructed, which is to show mankind God's desire and his plan to be with them, that God is then going to come. He's going to tabernacle with man, not as a tent structure, as a, um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a mural or as a picture, but now he is going to dwell or tabernacle with mankind in what? 
in flesh. That's right. He's going, to, he's going to become man so that he can identify with humanity so that he can die, so that he can take the place of the wrath of God that is due upon every single human being. So now Jesus, when we see him uh, here in the Gospels, he is coming and he is tabernacling. So just kind of just chew on that for a little while. In the Old Testament, we're seeing this, this, this type and this structure. We're going to see a little bit more of the reality of it whenever Jesus comes. And so just think about that verse 14. And the word became flesh and he made his, or and he, uh, and he tabernacled among us. Some of your translations probably even use that word there. Back over to Exodus chapter 26. And Father, we thank you for, oh, make sure not to turn your pages while I'm praying. Just kidding. <laughs> Might be one of those nights. Father, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to just rejoice um, in who you are and, and what you desire to do in the lives of, um, of all of your creation. And so, uh, Father, may we just, um, just be taken a, a step closer to you, that, uh, to come into your presence um, just a little bit more, to, to not fear um, stepping in behind or through the veil. Um, but just trusting our Lord and Savior that, that he is with us and that he is ushering us um, into your presence uh, every single day. And the body says? Amen. Okay, so make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen, uh, blue, purple, and scarlet. This is going to be, um, so essentially what we're going to be doing here, I'll show you guys that here in a second because you might get distracted. Now, uh, he's going to have them making um, essentially some coverings. This is going to be the roof, the roof of the, uh, of the tabernacle. We're going to have this first thing. It's going to be made out of linen. The other three coverings are going to be animal skins. This one is going to be made out of linen. It's going to have three colors, blue, purple, and scarlet. Uh, blue represents heaven. Uh, scarlet um, is going to represent either sacrifice or uh, even kings would wear uh, that as well. And purple speaks of royalty. Purple and the scarlet can speak of royalty. But here probably scarlet speaking of sacrifice. Purple speaking of royalty. Blue speaking of heaven. And so uh, this is going to be the first covering. So when you walked into this place, across the whole top, across the first section, uh, the first room, the holy place, and then behind where that veil is into the holy of holies, it's going to have the, your, when you looked up, you would see uh, the same thing in both of those rooms, and this is what it would be. It'd be made out of those three colors. There'd be cherubim, or simply put, angels, um, are going to be worked or sewn into them by a skilled craftsman. That would not be me. And all the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long, four cubits wide. Uh, if you see your letter B right there in your NIV, you can look down to the bottom later, not right now. Join five of the curtains together. So how many different curtains are there going to be? It's going to be five curtains. Now you're going to join them together. And do the same uh, with the other five. So you have five and five. So you're going to have 10. You're going to connect these five and these five uh, together. And then so you're going to have two sets of five curtains. This, and um, uh, make loops of blue material along the edge of the end of the curtain of one set. And do the same the other end uh, of the other set. And make 50 loops on one curtain. 50 loops on the end of the other set. Uh, with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps. And use them to fasten the curtains together. So that the tabernacle is a what? unit. It's a key phrase there that the tabernacle is going to be a unit. So this is, and, and let me say, I would encourage you to, to maybe even go on Google and kind of just say, uh, you know, what the, what the materials and the tabernacle represent. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts and ideas. Uh, there's a lot of um, 
themes that that everybody pretty much uh, agrees upon, uh, like the wood and the gold and so forth, uh, representing uh, humanity and uh, and divinity or, or deity, and. Uh, uh, silver, they agree about. Bronze are going to agree about. There's some other things like what these clasps represent um, and so forth. So uh, if you just kind of get the picture here, you're going to have uh, five curtains here. Uh, five, essentially, they're going to be really long drapes. Over here, they're going to be sewn together. And then in between them, you're going to put 50 loops on this one, 50 loops on this one, and then gold clasps are going to connect that together. And then they're going to lay that over the top of the tabernacle. So that's going to be the first thing that you'd see. So when you walk into the tabernacle, what you're going to see above you would be what? Would be this particular curtain covering over the top, but what are you going to see? What colors? You're going to see your blue, your purple, your scarlet. What else are you going to see there? The cherubim. And remember, God tells Moses, made this exactly like I tell you, because it's a picture of what? It's a picture of God's, of the heavenly throne room. There's angels around and so forth. We're seeing a royalty represented. We're seeing sacrifice represented. And so God is telling them to make this. So this is the first curtain um, that's, uh, that's going over this. And then it goes on with this and it says, make curtains of goat hair. Uh, for the tent, verse 7, over the tabernacle. So now the second layer is going to be uh, animal skins. Uh, For the tent over the tabernacle, 11 of those all together, all 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubit longs, 4 cubits wide. They're going to be a little bit bigger uh, than the first covering that goes on there. They're going to hang over it. It's going to be more for protection. Join the five curtains together into one set, and the other six into one set. So you have five over here, six over here that you're sewing together. So it's just a little bit longer. Um, Join five of the curtains together into one set, verse 9, and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end of the curtain in one set and along the edge of the end of the curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a what? As a unit or as a whole. We should understand that as all of this is being constructed, that uh, Peter tells us that we are, um, let me just go ahead and, and read it to you here. It would be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in the fourth verse, he says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So we're to understand that here you have this tabernacle, and God is very specific, remember? Make it according to the pattern that I have showed you, because we talked last week that God's plan of salvation, it doesn't have any variance in it. It is what it is. The equation is there. It is uh, uh, faith in Christ Jesus to save us from our sin equals eternal life with God. There's no, there's no variance in there. We can't substitute anything in there. Paul says if we are an angel or anybody else comes and proclaims to you what you've, other than what you've already heard, let them be what? Eternally what? condemned because you can't add anything. Jesus plus anything equals false religion, okay? It's Jesus only. Jesus says he is the way, he is the truth, and he is 
life, okay? So Peter's telling us now that uh, as we see the picture of the tabernacle, it's going to be constructed together, and it's going to be tight. I mean, this is going to be a strong building that's put together here. Peter tells us that we should understand that spiritually speaking, we are like a house that is being built together. The Holy Spirit is kind of the mortar that's joining us all together, and that we are being built, Peter says, into a spiritual house. And if it's a spiritual house, it means that it's a house that indwells the power of God or the spirit of God or God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now we have the second one, the second layer uh, is being built here. And it's, uh, it's made of goat hair, and there's some uh, speculation as to if it typically, like even that model that we have back there, it'll show um, the second layer being white. Predominantly, uh, the goats in the Middle East are, um, or uh, yeah, the goats are, are black. So very well could be a black. So this is where there gets to be a little uh, confusion because if it's a white cloth, white would usually represent what? purity. If it's a black cloth, it would represent sin. So, uh, so that's where, you know, the reality of this is going to be revealed one day for what it is whenever we're in the throne room of God. And I mean, that illumination is going to come. But it is interesting that God takes something that is so holy and so precious as the angels, the picture of the heavenly throne room, and then he takes dead animal skins and puts it on top of it. It really shows us that it is God's desire That's why scripture says about Jesus that he made himself a little lower than the what? Than the angels. And he became wrapped in flesh for our sake. And so here God is taking something as precious as as his angel in the picture of his throne room. And he's taking dead animal skins and he's throwing it on top of it. Now what's interesting and, uh, and this is just, uh, I'm not saying that this is the reason that they're using goat skins. But I think there's an important tie-in to all of this. Because, uh, let me see if I had it written down, Leviticus chapter 16. Anybody ever heard the term scapegoat before? Know where that comes from? What did I just say? Leviticus chapter, you guys are so smart. It comes from Leviticus chapter 16. And essentially what would happen is, when they were going to make uh, on that uh, on the day of atonement and so forth, they would bring uh, the two goats up, and they would they would have two goats. One of the goats is going to become the sacri- the sacrificial goat. The other goat is going to be the scapegoat. Now, it's it's not a good thing to be the scape the scapegoat here. We would much rather be those uh, who offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. But essentially what they would do is they would come up and then they would uh, essentially choose, draw straws uh, and, uh, and figure out which goat would, would be the scapegoat and which one is going to be the sacrifice. You can read all about this in chapter 16 of Leviticus where it talks about the scapegoat. That's right. And so, uh, so anyways, what would happen is one goat would be chosen to, uh, to become the sacrifice and its blood's going to be spilled. The other goat, they're going to put their hands on top of this goat, which by the way, if you didn't know this, when somebody would bring an animal and it was going to be a, it was going to be a sin offering, meaning that the people had, the, the individual had sin and something where their sin, um, something's got to pay the price and God had set it up to teach mankind that something has to die in your place in order to deal with your sin, right? 
So when somebody would bring a sin offering to the tabernacle or to the temple, essentially what they're doing is they're bringing in maybe this weed little lamb or maybe they're bringing in a one-year-old bull or, or, a, uh, or a goat or something. And what they literally would do is they would lay their hands on the head of the animal. They would confess their sin and then they'd slit the, the throat of the animal. Out pours the blood. They've got the bowls. They capture it. Now they can go ahead and give that as a sin offering, okay? We'll get to that if, uh, when we get into Leviticus there. But essentially, isn't that interesting? You had to lay your hands on the animal and confess your sin because that animal is taking the penalty for your sin. Isn't that interesting? I mean, how God just made this just kind of you know, just shine out what he's doing here. So what they would do is when they had the two goats there, when they're doing the sins for the nation of Israel, uh, they, one animal would become the sacrifice, the offering, the sin offering, and then the other animal was the, what do we say it's called? The scapegoat, and essentially the sins, the unintentional sins. Uh, that's probably something we need to be familiar with, but no time for, night, for tonight. But there were um, sacrifices for intentional sins, and there were even sacrifices that need to be made for unintentional sins. Because sometimes they're sin when we blatantly sin. Sometimes we sin, and we didn't even mean to. Um, and so anyways, so essentially all of the guilt of the people, of the unintentional sins, are, are symbolically placed upon the scapegoat, and then they, they throw the scapegoat out into the wilderness to go wander and essentially to die. Which is why it says that Jesus, was, he, went, he was taken outside the gate of the city, and he was crucified. Scripture tells us, well, hey, if that's where he went, let's, uh, let's, let's all go along to where he went outside the city, and, and let's take that same route. And so something that's kind of interesting was that so this uh, this goat was kind of symbolic of having all of the unintentional sins of the whole nation of Israel, and so they would take it out there, and a guy would walk it way, way, way far away from the camp. Uh, matter of fact, that guy would become unclean because he was in proximity, and he would touch this goat and so forth, walking it out. He had purification rites. Uh, you can read about that in what chapter? 16 of Leviticus, and uh, so he then had to go through a ritual cleansing before he could come back into the camp, and uh, what they didn't want, and maybe this happened or something, I, I don't really know if this happened for sure or not, but, uh, but they wanted to make sure that that goat didn't come back into the camp because it represented what? Their sin. So uh, what, I, what I come to understand is that uh, oftentimes they would take this goat outside the camp and they would kind of push it off a cliff uh, so it would fall down, break its neck, and then, you know, woo, you know, yeah, it took the punishment for our sin. But isn't that interesting how God has put all of this together? Either way, we see this, uh, we see this concept here of, uh, of putting these coverings over the tabernacle. So you see the first one that's in, in the very front. We're going to talk about this curtain here at the very end, but this is the one right here that we have that would be of the purple, the blue, uh, made out of uh, linen, and that's the covering that goes all the way down through, uh, through the very back. And then this is this uh, artist's rendering of the, uh, the goatskin uh, covering that's right there. It could be white, could be black. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't really know, and... and um, I'm not really sure uh, that it's uh, supposed to be that important to us, but color-wise. But it is interesting that here we see, once again, bringing in the concept of, of the goat, and people understand 
that there would be goats are going to come to understand that goats would, um, would become something that would take uh, the penalty um, of their sin, or essentially it would temporarily cover them, I should say, um, from God's wrath, from his judgment upon them. We're going to talk about the bronze a little bit later. Uh, there in verse 11, it says, make 50 bronze clasps. Um, if you look at the very, if you remember the very first linen covering, what were they combined? What, what, what were the clasps made out of, of that first, of that first curtain? We might say gold, gold represents what? Okay, and so, uh, and so it's, talking about, it's talking about holiness, talking about God there. Here, um, this second one dealing with the animal skins, we've, we now move to bronze. And bronze, by the way, in Scripture, you should probably write this uh, in your margin there, uh, bronze represents what for us? Bronze represents judgment. We get over into verse 37, um, the fourth word from the end. We're going to spend a little bit of time and, and talk about uh, the symbolism of that bronze there. Everything in the tabernacle, we are to understand that everything in the tabernacle does have significance for us, showing God's plan of redemption. Now, uh, verse 12, as for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle, and the tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. So this is uh, a big extra large covering now. Make uh, for the tent a covering of ram's skin dyed red. So that was a pretty good depiction, I think, on this right here. Of uh, there's the uh, essentially the third covering. It's going to be the the ram skins there. I only take that off so we don't get distracted by it because it's a lot of fun to look at. By the way, those pictures are free on Google. You can stare as long as you want on them. Um, and so it says, uh, verse 13, the ten curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle. So to cover it, make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over, uh, and over that a covering of hides of sea cows. So these last two coverings, number three and number four, um, God just says, hey, make this and make this. Um, something interesting that you could look at uh, goes to, uh, in regards to the ram skins, you could look at Genesis chapter 22. Remember the picture, that's where uh, Abraham and Isaac are going up onto the mountain. Abraham's going to offer a sacrifice to God. Um, God has challenged Abraham, would you be willing to give up your son to have a relationship with me? And so uh, as Isaac and Abraham are going up the mountain, Isaac says, hey dad, we, uh, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the sacrifice. And Abraham says, maybe a, a, a better interpretation of the Hebrew would be, uh, and Abraham says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And so uh, what we see here, and of course that speaks of who? Speaks of Jesus, who is God in flesh. God's going to provide the sacrifice. It's going to be himself. He's going to come and die for the sins of mankind. And if you remember, as Isaac was tied up there, or however, I, I shouldn't say tied up. That's, that's one of those things where you see those pictures and, uh, and, and you build these, uh, these concepts and so forth. Uh, Isaac there as a grown man lying down there. Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice him on this altar that they've constructed. And um, an angel shows up. The angel says, oh, oh stop, don't do this. And he looks up in the thicket and what does he see caught up in the thicket? He sees a ram that's caught up in there and he goes ahead and sacrifices the lamb. Uh, the ram. So the ram was sacrificed in place of Isaac. 
right? Isaac was saved because there was something that was sacrificed in his place. The fourth one is simply this. And over that, a covering of hides of sea cows, or some of your translations may say badger skins or anything else. Porpoises. Tash. That clarifies it. Dolphins. <laughs> I actually saw that earlier, and I didn't take time to look it up. Um, uh, or it's, it's, it's a waterproof covering, okay? We're, we're to understand that. So, uh, uh, so we have this idea now um, uh, of, the, uh, of these four layers that are on there. Let me just give you a minute to just go ahead and take a gander at this again, just so you guys can uh, kind of get a, uh, a concept of what's going on here. Remember, this whole tabernacle, it's not much bigger than from that wall to that wall to that wall to that wall. So it's, it's really pretty. It would encompass uh, kind of these four people right here, um, all the way from that wall all the way back. That's, that's all y'all that's getting into the, into the tabernacle tonight. Okay, you guys good with that? Let me show you a couple of other things why I have this um, connected here. I'll show it to you in a little bit. Take note of this, the end of verse 15, or the end of verse 14, whether it's a porpoise or a teshkahardi or a sea cow um, or whatever it is, it, it, was, it, it was a fabric that wasn't real appealing. Uh, you see the last one out there, that's the final covering. And, and can you imagine if, if people, if the Israelites, oh yeah, come and see the tabernacle, it's where God dwells. And, you know, people from other uh, nations might be like, that's the ugliest looking place. Your God asked to have it built like this. Your God must have no taste. Obviously, uh, he's not a really cool God because we know that God's like really cool things. And so, but what is really unique about this, what's interesting and about all of this is that the exterior of this was not very beautiful at all. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us about our Savior that of Jesus there was no form or comeliness uh, that we should desire him or that we should be attracted to him. Meaning that Jesus probably wasn't this, you know, this uh, romanticized uh, concept of, you know, this great looking guy walking around with a lamb and a shepherd's staff, always kind of doing this and sparkling his teeth and a little bit of a wink like that. Um, it, it just says he, he w- there wasn't anything that really attracted men to him. There wasn't anything that was real unique about him. Remember when they went to the garden to arrest him? that uh, Judas essentially had to go up to Jesus and identify him. Now, Jesus was a pretty popular character uh, figure there in Jerusalem, but, but still, even at nighttime, they weren't really quite sure that all the, you know, uh, they all kind of just kind of blended in together. So wasn't anything real unique about Jesus, as opposed to, remember Saul, the one that they said, you know, hey, uh, hey, Samuel, we don't, we don't, um, uh, we don't really want God to lead us. We want a king like the other nations. So remember they chose Saul to be the first king and God said, tell the people that is the last thing that they ever want to have happen in their life. And they said, we want it anyway because we want a king who will go out ahead of us into war, who will lead our, uh, our military out to war and have great conquests and, and so forth. We want a king like the what? Like the other nations. And remember what it says specifically about Saul? He was what? head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, He had it going on. Uh, 
Um, and so, uh, so anyways, we see that this exterior, uh, it's, it's not real extravagant on the outside. Some people may say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, that, you know, that's, that's not really that appealing. Um, but we're going to see, uh, we're going to see, uh, where God, uh, what God is going to make up for here, beginning in verse 15, make upright frames of acacia wood once again. And this is kind of a hard, gnarly wood. Uh, it's insect resistant. It's disease resistant. Probably difficult to work with. If you've ever tried to cut wood that has knots in it uh, or, or drive a nail or drive a screw in a, into a knot or even split wood that has uh, knots in it and so forth, uh, you can really hurt yourself doing that. Here they're going to build these frames, but it was the wood that was readily available there in the wilderness. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubit longs and a cubit and a half wide. So 15 feet tall are these panels, two and a quarter feet wide. Okay, so 15 foot tall, two foot, uh, three inches wide. Um, So probably uh, I can't even reach up that high. Uh, 15 foot, I I think... um, Let's see, we're sloping down. I think we're about 15 foot over here on, uh, on, from floor to ceiling uh, over there. So these panels are uh, two foot three inches wide by 15 foot tall. They're made out of what kind of wood? Acacia wood. They're going to be covered in what? They're going to be covered in gold. Each frame is to be uh, uh, 16, uh, 10 cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. So at the bottom of each of these boards, there's going to be kind of like two teeth that come out of it. And those teeth are going to sit into a base. We're going to get that here in just a second. Um, Verse 18 Verse 17 says, with two projections set parallel to each other, make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. If you've looked at our picture back there, or um, you can't really see them in that picture there, uh, going to make all of these panels all the way around. Verse 18, make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and uh, make 40, what, silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames of these uh, wood covered in gold. 40 silver bases for the other side, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end. Um, That is the west end of the tabernacle. You always enter the tabernacle on what side? the, The door faces east. And make two frames for the corners at the far end. These two corners, they must be double from top to bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both uh, shall be like that. There shall be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Now that really just clarifies everything for us so we can just continue on. No, we should understand, we should stop for just a moment because we miss something that is, uh, that is very, um, well, that we have to get. The boards we said, uh, these panels that are 15 feet tall, a couple feet wide. What kind of wood again? In Acacia, uh, the wood speaks of what? Jesus is humanity. They're overlaid now with what? With gold. That's a lot of gold, isn't it? And gold speaks of what? That's right. And then they're going to have two teeth that comes out of the bottom of this board because you've got to stick this board into something, right? And so God is, God is telling them, you're going to make a foundation, get the picture, the foundation of the whole tabernacle is made out of what? Silver. Get this. The foundation of the whole tabernacle, what is going to keep it, what it's all set into, 
what's going to keep it all closely knit together there at the base, the structure, right? Foundation's everything in building, right? The foundation is out of silver. Anybody know what silver represents in scripture? Silver is the metal that represents redemption. You're going to find that in order to, we've already seen it, that in order to purchase a, a, a back a slave, uh, silver is required. We're going to find actually that Judas betrays Jesus and sells him for silver. That's right. Um, and so we see that throughout Scripture, this is going to be um, your expositional constancy that um, take note when you see something of silver that pops up, because if you think back, that silver in Scripture represents what? It represents redemption. So what we're seeing here in this whole tabernacle picture, that the foundation of all of this is what? Is redemption. The foundation of what God is showing the people is that he wants to redeem them. Redemption, by the way, it means to purchase back, to purchase something out of. And uh, for us, it would be that we are being purchased out of slavery into the family of God. And when we're purchased by God, he gives us a new name and, um, and we no longer identify with anything from our old life. When we're talking in the New Testament, whenever the writers are trying to explain to us that in Christ we're a new creation, um, when they're talking about being adopted as sons, we should understand that in that first century and in, in, in the Roman time there, that when somebody is adopted into a family, they lose their previous name. Uh, anything that they had to do with their previous way of life, their debts, everything, it's all completely just gone, and they start out as a, they're given a new name, and their life literally begins at day one um, with that new family. And that's the picture of adoption, and that's why Scripture tells us that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family, meaning that we now identify with who God is, who his household, what his household represents, and we are no longer a part of our old life um, that we once lived in this world. So silver represents what? Redemption. That's right. Good job. Let me just show you a little bit of this because um, now somebody did not go back in time or Moses did not grab his iPhone and take a picture um, of the tabernacle. These are just uh, uh, kind of uh, artist renderings um, you see the little tabernacle we have back there. Obviously, I probably, they should have sent me some paint with it because uh, we're missing quite a few things there. But here's just, I want you guys to understand and just kind of get a picture of, uh, of, what's go- of what's going on here. So this is kind of a, uh, this is one, this is a side view of the tabernacle. Um, can you turn the, those interior lights down just for a moment, please? You can just do the main house lights. You don't have to do the spots. Now, is that what you already had set in your mind? Is that what, if you had to draw out the pictures, is that what you had? Because that's not really typically what we get because we're like, yeah, boards covered in wood, 15 feet tall, so forth. Remember, it didn't have an opening on the side here. He's entered in from this side. See the little lamb over there, or a little ram, maybe, uh, a, little, a little lamb that's there. Um, here's four pillars on the inside. You can't see the curtain um, that's on the back side of that, uh, but you see in the back compartment there, uh, you see the ark, the atonement cover, and so forth. So we're not really talking a great big place, but what I find interesting, and I did not pull up the picture that I wanted to show you, 
Here's another kind of rendering of it, kind of a cutaway version. Top's taken off, the side's taken off. But when you walked into this place, literally what you would see is you would see um, gold walls on your sides, 15 feet tall. You're going to see gold walls. You're going to see this beautifully crafted uh, embroidery on top of you there. You're going to see the other curtain, the veil, a uh, beautifully embroidered veil that, was, uh, the, uh, uh, the veil that is there. It's going to just be absolutely amazing. And I was telling Angela at dinner time, uh, there's that artist's uh, depiction of the lampstand. Lampstand is always on your left. And what's on your right? Table of showbread in front of you would be the altar of incense that if you have if you have polished gold all the way around you and you light the least bit of light in there what's that light going to (laughs) do i mean it's that light just bouncing all over the place so it may not have taken when you think of well didn't you know then i need more to kind of just a few lamps Uh, it may have been really illuminated in there because it's just this brilliance of gold and you walk in and you just see the gold that's lit up you see the embroidery on the ceiling the embroidery in front of you uh pretty pretty impressive there here's another one now, I don't know if this is a tapestry or a painting or, or where this has come from. It's just a Google pick. Um, but, but I don't know. It just kind of spoke to me there because um, they may have made uh, those panels there on the left um, really ornate like that. I mean, sometimes we think, well, it's just a solid panel. But, but these are, you know, some phenomenal. God is going to give men the ability to construct all of this, and it's uh, just absolutely, I, I think it would be absolutely gorgeous. Here's your four pillars. That's going to be, uh, that's a depiction of, uh, of the angel, the cherubim there, and behind that is going to be the, the holy of holies. Uh, that guy, the priest who is standing up there, that's the altar of incense. Um, to your right is the table of showbread, and to your left is. Now remember this, because this is kind of interesting. Go read um, about uh, Zacharias. Zechariah, Zacharias. Um, okay, John the Baptist, dad, Zechariah. Um, John the Baptist's dad, father was, um, was one of the priests who had been selected, and it was very rare for anybody involved in the priesthood to be able to have the opportunity um, to be able to serve. So um, kind of it was a lottery system is really what it was. Your clan would come to Jerusalem um, for the week that you might be able to serve, and then they chose a specific, you know, then they chose a group out of the clan, and then they winnowed, winnowed it down a little bit more until they finally picked the person that could go in. So maybe like one in a thousand that you might even make the journey to Jerusalem and actually get to serve. And uh, when you see that picture there, it makes me think of whenever uh, John the Baptist's dad was in the temple uh, uh, and he was serving and he was doing the offerings and so forth uh, for that day whenever uh, the angel came and spoke to him and right, he goes mute and all of that. Um, but anyway, so back over to your, uh, back over to your exodus. 
So silver bases, we see that that speaks of uh, redemption. Uh, verse 26, also make crossbars. Uh, thank you for the lights. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and make the five frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. And then a center crossbar is to extend from one end Uh, from end to end at the middle of the frames and overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. So essentially, if this is, uh, say if this is the exterior wall right here, I'm on the outside, uh, here's everything going on on the inside. Uh, They would make um, essentially clasps or or rings on these 15-foot tall walls and they would take poles that would go through those rings. And so you just see, uh, you see that uh, this tabernacle is really just kind of being pulled together. And so uh, what's keeping, uh, what's keeping uh, those 15-foot-tall planks from going in and out like this is you have this bar system that's going not only on the outside of it, but did you notice there's something else interesting? There's another set of poles that runs where? Through the middle of all of them. If you pull out one of those uh, little plank boards on the, uh, the tabernacle there, you'll see that there's a hole in each, uh, in each and every one of them. Uh, they got that right, but they didn't put the little rings on the outside of them. I don't, I don't know. They chose to put some things in there and some things not. And then set up the tabernacle, verse 30, according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen, with cherubim worked into it by skilled craftsmen, hang it, on with, uh, hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, and uh, standing on what? There's your silver bases. Silver represents what? Gold represents what? The acacia wood represents? Okay. Hang the curtain from the clasps and, and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain... Take note of this. This might need to be underlined or highlighted. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy. Now, we've made it a long ways here. We've talked about the four coverings over the top of the tabernacle. We've talked about all the, the, the wall system that's going to go on there. It's going to have to be very tight. I mean, this thing, it's going to be a lot of weight involved with all of this gold, uh, the coverings on top of it. And so uh, God is making sure this is literally like a little Fort Knox. I mean, this is a very strong building. And then God says this. Now, I want you to make another curtain. And it's going to be 15 by 15. And I want you to go ahead and make it up. It's going to have the, the angels on it and so forth. And you're going to hang that up onto the, uh, the gold clasps. And the curtain is going to separate the holy place from the most holy. I'll never remember that I set that there. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy. We've been talking a lot about the curtain lately. We've been referencing a lot about Hebrews, uh, a lot in Hebrews. We've been talking about it a lot here how that, that curtain only allowed one man to go behind there one day a year. He went back there twice, first made an offering for his sins, then he would come out purify himself, then he'd go back in there and and make it for uh, the sins of the nation of Israel. But here it's talking about this curtain is going to separate. So this curtain represents for us the separation that is between God and man. Every day it was required for priests to come into the holy place, right? Just so you get this clear, the first compartment is called the holy place. The second compartment is called the 
holy of holies or the most holy place, okay? So work was always required in that first compartment every single day, seven days a week. There is no such thing as a Sabbath rest for them to have to take care of that. They had to maintain that, keep the lamps going, trade out the bread, offer uh, prayers for the nation of Israel and so forth. But then there is this veil. And what God is trying to communicate to man is that there is a barrier for God to be able to have a relationship with mankind because of what? Of sin. This isn't even so much about mankind getting to God. Sometimes we look at it and say, oh, I can't get back in, you know, oh, man couldn't get back in behind the veil. What God is trying to say is he desperately desires to have a relationship with mankind, but sin is separating him getting to us. So what does he do? He becomes like us and dwells among us. Isn't that amazing? He wraps himself in flesh. Sin separates God from the relationship that he desires with his creation. And so he makes a way. He wraps himself in flesh so he can identify with us and dwell or tabernacle with us. It's an amazing thing to think about that here is this veil where God is saying, come close to me, come close to me, but you can't come too close to me because my holiness will have to judge you according to your sin. Come close. Kind of one of these things. When I was a kid, my dad, when he'd coach third base and guy'd be running around third, uh, second base, come to third, my dad would be coaching third base like this at the guy. It's one of the funniest things ever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. He'll be proud that I, that I told that. The curtain is going to separate where men can be and where God is. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, by the way. And then we're going to look at Hebrews 10.20. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's pick up in verse 7. Let's pick up in verse 6. It says this in Hebrews 9, 6, when everything had been arranged like this, putting all the furniture in a specific place, um, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, also known as the holy place, Uh, to carry on their ministry. So there was work to be done. There was ministry that needed to be taken care of, but only the high priest entered the inner room, which is called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins, uh, for the sins the people had committed in what? Ignorance. Now, what was the point of this separation? The Holy Spirit was showing. Isn't that cool? So in the same way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us today and, and, and shows us who God is, his plan, his love, and so forth, he was working then all those years through the tabernacle system, uh, through when Solomon built his temple, the second temple, and all of that. The Holy Spirit was showing that as long as this veil was there to keeping mankind from going there consistently, was showing by this that the way into the most holy place or the presence of God had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. 
or it's saying this, that the way was not yet made. As long as that veil was there, it meant that God and man cannot have a relationship. Doesn't matter how many offerings that you would bring God, you cannot have that relationship. All the offering did, all the animal sacrificing did was it just kept God from judging. It was a temporary covering and mankind had to continue to come back time and time again. As long as the veil is there, as long as the veil is separating those two rooms, man and God cannot have a relationship um, together. And that's what the Holy Spirit is showing. Now, we go over to, to 10 and 20. Let's pick up in verse 19. By the way, um, I'll ask for a show of hands. No, I won't. Did you guys have um, Did you guys have a good time at least getting into Hebrews um, this week and just seeing the reality? Uh, of what is there. You should be very familiar uh, with the majority of stuff that's going on. We've, uh, I've taught through Hebrews. Now, I can't remember how long ago it was. It doesn't seem like all that long ago. But um, it's, all of that should seem very familiar to you. Once again, I want to encourage you, start in chapter one, work your way through what you don't understand. Go ahead and send me an email and say, hey, can I get some clarification or do you have some commentary or something that I can read on this and I can get you something real quick. Hebrews should be a book. Honestly, it sounds like a tough book, doesn't it? Hebrews. (laughs) Okay, maybe. It sounds like a tough book, but honestly... I believe that every single person in this room should be able to sit down and teach the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter to somebody. And I'm not saying being a theologian, but have a very strong grasp at what is being communicated there. Mainly because we've been talking, you guys have like 50 hours of teaching under your belt about everything that's going on in the book of Hebrews. That's without even going through the book of Hebrews. We should be able to, over the course of time, guys, we... Honestly, I expect that, that you guys in this room should be able to open up the book of Exodus and teach somebody what the book of Exodus is about. God's taking this picture out of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of, yeah, of the world and of bondage. Moses is sent as a type of Jesus, Savior, Messiah. He's the deliverer, right? He's the picture that brings the people out there. Um, uh, They come out there. You have the bread, right? Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. You have the water. Uh, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Um, If you knew who it was in John chapter 4 who's asking you for a drink, uh, you would be asking him for a drink, and he would give you, anybody know? Living water. Oh, well, sir, give me this water that you speak of. And so, uh, so anyway, so we should be able to do that. The light, the cloud that was over them. Um, you know, the, the pillar of fire and so forth. This is a picture, you know, this, this is Jesus following them around, taking care of them in the wilderness. We have all of this. Um, these are all things that you guys know, right? I mean, you guys are answering these questions as I'm throwing it out there. We should be able to, whether it's a three-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 70-year-old, these are all things that, guys, this is, yeah, we know these things. So now what's important is that we begin to share these things with people. Um, you can explain. Go back and listen, if you didn't get it the first time, through the messages on the table of showbread and the lampstand and so forth. And you, you can just tell somebody, you know, because most people don't know anything about the tabernacle. Most people aren't taught about the tabernacle. 
They have no idea. They just thought, hey, it's just a tent, it's a place where God hung out and so forth. They don't understand what it really means. And this would be the Christians. And so these are all, these are all things. Look at Hebrews. Since you guys got me on that rant. Um, Okay. Hang on a second. I got to find this. Okay, there it is. Um, uh, Look at chapter 6 with me. And then uh, back up just a few verses into uh, verse 11. We don't know who writes the book of Hebrews. Some speculate could be Paul, could be Apollos. Um, I like the idea that Paul has written. It doesn't really matter. Verse 11 of chapter 5, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, are you guys there in Hebrews 5? Hey, verse 12. In fact, though, by this time, uh, you ought to be what? Teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Now take note of this. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, uh, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about what? Righteousness. Solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, um, therefore, let us leave the elementary truths, uh, teachings, catch this, six and one, the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. So he's saying this, let's leave... We're not going to abandon the ABCs of our Christian faith, but we're going to move beyond the ABCs of our Christian faith. I believe one of the plagues in the contemporary church today is that most people are stuck in elementary school in regards to God's word. And Reed Angela's studies coming out. Uh, how did you write that? That uh, most students now, and these are the ones who grow up in church, they do not know the difference between John the Baptist, Jonah, Noah, I mean, they just, you know, they, they just, it's not, it's just not clicking. I mean, these are the kids that's going to Sunday school, you know, from the time that they're four years old, uh, you know, hearing these stories and so forth. And Miss Michaelis asks them, okay, who's John the Baptist? And they all look there. You know, the one kid, by the way, who would be able to answer that question, who John the Baptist is? Her Church of Christ kids. <laughs> what? Oh, the more, more, I'm sorry. No, not the Church of Christ. The Mormon. The more. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's just, it's religion, right? It's just religion. I mean, somebody who spends, somebody spends their whole life in church is still a babe in Christ. We have to understand there's just a lot of religiosity there. And let me say, thank God that God turns the lights on for us, right? I was explaining to Lindsay the other day, uh, Lindsay the other day, that, um, you know, I'd grown up in church my whole life, but God didn't really turn, I mean, I, that, that spark didn't come till, uh, till I was about 30 years old, maybe 32 years old. 
And Lindsay's like, oh, she got all excited. She, she didn't know how much she was grinning. She's like, ah, oh, you know, because cause it's a great thing, you know. And I was trying to tell her because sometimes we feel, oh, you know, it's so sad that, you know, that I really started grasping what, what the Lord's word meant and so forth, so forth, you know, so late in life. And a 30-year-old feels like he's or she's too old. And the 40-year-old feels, oh, it's such a shame. I've wasted so much life in the 50 and the 60 and 70 and 80-year-old. We may feel like that, but the reality is, praise God, that at some point in your life and for every single person in this room, something was flicked in you that you said, that is what I want. And we're hearing that a lot more. Angela just heard it on, uh, on the student trip from one of the other faculty members that was there. She just said, you know what? Sunday morning service is great at our church, but it's catered to those who are lost. She said, I really like the Bible studies that happen midweek. And I'm like, that's great. And we're hearing a lot more of that. But, but look at what the writer here, uh, still in Hebrews 6, he's talking about, um, uh, therefore let us read uh, verse 1, the elementary truths about Christ go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. Now listen to what the writer is saying here. Your attention, please. He's saying there's nothing wrong with talking about baptism or being resurrected from the dead and, and you know, being forgiven of your sins. Catch this. He's saying that those are all what kind of truths? Elementary truths. It's, that's, that's what got you into the relationship. Those things are kind of, those are the basic things that somebody grasps in order to have a relationship with God right? Somebody who's saved, they're going to be baptized. Well, they need to know why they're baptized. It's going to be explained to them. They're going to be baptized and so forth. They're going, these are the basic things. And he's saying, why then years down the road, is that still what you're chewing on, that you're spending time on? I honestly believe, I honestly believe that the majority of churches in the United States just dumbs down the word of God unnecessarily to people. People honestly think, I've talked to a number of youth ministers who's, you know, well, I could never teach them, you know, through a chapter because it's just too hard. It's just too weighty. You know, if you can't, and people say that about Hebrews. Oh, it's just too, you know, just too deep through. No, a brand new believer can study through the book of Hebrews and be encouraged by it and find spiritual growth. I think for our young people, we've set the bar way too low. And I think for ourselves, as those who make the decisions, typically, and I talked about this a week or two ago, we're setting the bar way too low for ourselves. Right? And typically, it's because we have so many other obligations that are more important. Man, guys, what happens if if we, if we set Christ as our standard, as our example, and we say, he is what I'm going to run after. I can no longer put him in last place at the end of the day, at the end of my life, after I'm expired and tired from all of my work, then I'll, then I'll, you know, then I'll give Jesus my time. It's hard to pray at night while you're laying in bed, isn't it? Is anybody guilty of falling asleep praying in bed? I cannot pray in this position. (laughs) 
I can't even pray standing up half the time. I got to walk around and so forth. You guys know what I'm talking about? Man. Do you see what he's telling them here is by now you ought to be teachers. The whole point of what I'm trying to say here is this. When we study the tabernacle, you see, we know it's a picture of God's salvation, but what God is showing in the tabernacle is a more complete picture of how he's going to save you. There's, there's, the, there's separation in that sin. There's a holy God who dwells in there. The law is inside the ark, but it's covered by an atonement cover. Blood is put on top of that. Well, why blood, Steve? Why would blood be put on there? Because where there, uh, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of what? Blood. Hebrews. There has to be blood. Something has to die in your place. I said on Sunday, I think we need to talk less about religion and more about sin and the blood of, the blood of Christ Jesus. I think that should be our number one topic with people before we ever get to religion, religious styles, uh, pastor preferences, the way that the word is taught, uh, worship style, um, stage performance, smoke, any of those things, electric guitars. Let's just set all that to the side and say, you know what? Yeah, we could talk about that for a billion years and nothing is going to change a person, but the only thing that can change a person is the word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is for salvation. The only way our lives are changed is by the word of God. doesn't matter how much we talk about anything else. If it's not the word of God, we're never going to move on to maturity. And let me say, when we start digging into things like the tabernacle, we're going into deeper subjects. We're not just talking about Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me, so thank God that he does, and we cling on to that with great hope, right? But now we're going into the deeper waters. Now we're walking out there. And it's not unattainable, is it? I don't believe that there's anything that God has written in this book that he cannot give you understanding of. I don't believe that he's a God who keeps himself elusive, right? I mean, he showed himself in a tent. He shows himself in a human form 15 years later, 2,000 years ago. And he speaks to us today by his Holy Spirit, right? He's coming along. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit who strives with mankind, he comes along and convicts, convicts them of sin, righteousness, and guilt. He wants mankind to know that there is a living God, that God is not what? He's not dead. Now, where were we? Hebrews 10, 19. Look at this. Therefore, this is your veil message here. One of these days we'll buy a, build a soapbox. Thank you for your patience. Does it make sense? I mean, just read what the author of Hebrews is saying. 19, therefore, Brother, since we have confidence now to enter the most holy place, stop for a second. Matthew tells us that when Jesus is crucified, and he says, It is finished, that the curtain that was in the temple, some 60 feet tall, ranging anywhere from four inches thick to about 14 inches thick. That it was torn, how? From the top to the bottom. What is Matthew telling us? That a man didn't tear it. Who did? God made the way. How shocking if those priests were (laughs) in that first area whenever they heard this huge rip, which that must have been pretty phenomenal anyway. But then they're sitting there and they're staring at the ark and they didn't, what? They didn't die. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, catch this, just pay attention to the scripture here. 
by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, meaning that we now have access. If you remember the previous verse in chapter 9, said as long as the veil was there, mankind and God could not have that relationship. God is eternal. We are not. We, we, we are sinful. And by a new and living way, verse 20, 1020, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance. Verse, verse 19 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, meaning this. Jesus' body is torn, right? Get the picture here. You have the veil that is there. It's separating God from man. Now we have a new veil. That's between us and God. Who is that? Who's our mediator? Yeah, Jesus. His body is torn. He now opens the way. He is like the new curtain for us. The old curtain that represented our sin and separation, God rips that open, and now who stands between us and God? He's kind of, if you see the picture of what the Hebrew writer is saying here, he's our new veil, and that veil is what? It's wide open. It's who he is. That's why he can say, I am the way. That's why he's saying it. He's not trying to say, oh, yeah, you follow me to get to God and so forth. No, he's saying the way to God, and that's what Hebrews chapter 9 is saying. As long as the veil is there, the way to God is not disclosed. Man can't get there. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be the way you get to God. That veil of sin that separates, that veil that is there, it's going to be torn apart. And I, you're going to come through me. You have to walk through Jesus into Christ Jesus in order to walk into the Holy of Holies. It's good news, isn't it? And that's what he's saying. Man, combining this with Hebrews, it's just absolutely amazing. So God is telling Moses, back over to Exodus. He says, verse 36, for the entrance to the tent. So now this is, you always enter the tabernacle from what direction? From the, from the east side. Now he's going to talk about the curtain that is there. Just to get into it. So you're out in the courtyard now. You have the laver, which is just a big fancy hand washing station. You have the, the brazen altar back behind you. We'll get to that. And now you're going to go, in order to get in there, there's another veil that's there. Now look, uh, or there's another curtain, I should say. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet. Here's these colors again. Finely twisted linen, the works of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain. Five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast five bronze bases for them. So now if you notice, uh, well, on that one back there, you can see there's going to be posts in the front. There's going to be five on the front. Uh, There's four on the inside that separates the two rooms. But here we have fine. There's going to be a curtain on the inside of them. Gold glass, they're going to hang that up there and so forth. But these pillars are going to be set into what? Into bronze. Now, The rest of the pillars, or the rest of the boards, I should say, are set in what? Silver speaks of redemption. Bronze speaks of 
judgment. Now, this is a lot of fun for me. I, 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 I love where we're going here with this. So silver speaks of redemption. Bronze speaks of judgment. You're going to find that everything from that curtain out word, meaning the whole, um, courtyard, thanks, the whole courtyard, you're going to find that bronze is going to be represented out there and everything. You're going to have uh, the altar that they burn all of the sacrifices on or the sin offerings and so forth. It's made out of bronze. You're going to find that the laver or the big fancy washing bowl, it's made out of bronze. You're going to have these pillars out there and they're going to be set into their foundation there as what? bronze, meaning that as you look around at everything on the exterior of the tabernacle, you're going to see bronze everywhere, which represents what? Judgment. In order to get into the tabernacle, you have to be well acquainted with the understanding that there is judgment that is out there. We understand who's the one who's going to take our judgment, who took our judgment. Jesus. Out there in the courtyard, it's the animals that's taken the judgment for man's sins. That's why there's bronze everywhere, because bronze represents what? Judgment. Now, this is interesting about bronze. Bronze is made, the interesting thing about bronze, gold is gold. You just refine it with fire. Okay, you uh, you boil up the impurities. Uh, silver is silver. You mine silver, and if you want to purify it, you heat it up, and and the dross comes to the top. That's all the bad stuff, and they scrape it off. And and when you can see your reflection in in the silver or the gold, then then you know that it's purified and so forth. So that's dealing with gold and silver. But bronze, bronze is made. Bronze not something that you mine. Bronze is an alloy. Of its one main ingredient is copper, and then a whole slew of other things. They first started making it. This goes back to um, thirty-five to forty-five hundred BC. It was the you guys ever heard of the Bronze Age? Remember it, in school? They first started making it with arsenic. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Oh, honey, you bought me a new bronze spoon to eat with. Thank you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. Uh with arsenic, and then later on they refined it a little bit more by using tin, and when you combined um, the copper and the tin or the copper and the arsenic, um, it just made it a really strong, it was stronger than stone, tile, uh, anything else that, that they could fabricate at that particular time. It was the strongest metal, so they would make um, you know, some spearheads, uh, shields, and all of that, helmets. Um, a lot of the busts and stuff that they would make of people be made out of bronze because it's just, it's, it's strong, but it's made, and this is the point. It's an alloy. It's made, and it's made through fire. Gold is purified. Silver is purified. Bronze is made through the fire. That's why Scripture tells us about our Savior. See, the deal for us is we've already been put to the test, and we've been found wanting, haven't we? (laughs) We failed, didn't we? Jesus has been tested or tempted by every fire that a man could be put through. Yet he was found what? Perfect, flawless, sinless. That enables him to be the only one 
who could die for our sin. That enables him to stand in your place and in your place. Because I can't stand in your place because I'm sinful. So God could judge me, find me guilty, judge you, find you guilty. But Jesus, he's not found guilty of sin, but he takes upon himself because he's perfect. He takes upon himself the wrath of God's sin upon himself, meaning he takes the punishment. In essence, he becomes, well, he stands in our place. Sinless, but taking on the punishment for our sin. We should understand as we look at all this, let me just share a couple things here with you. Numbers 21, uh, if you can, it's, you're in Exodus, go to your right, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I'll put a couple pieces of this puzzle here together. And then put your finger over in John chapter 12. Numbers 21, Numbers 21, John 12. Numbers 21, verse 4, it says that they traveled. This is their wanderings now. This is, this is uh, after where we're at getting the law and building the tabernacle. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around to Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us out here uh, out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Got the picture. People grumbled against God. God sent venomous snakes. Venomous snakes are biting the people. People are dying. No good. They come to Moses and they say, we what? We sinned. We sinned. Go talk to God about it. And the Lord said to Moses, this is what I'm talking about. This is that expositional constancy. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and what? And live. So Moses made a bronze. Bronze speaks of what? Judgment. He's making this bronze snake. He's putting it on a pole. He's going to lift it up. People who are bitten, if they look at this bronze snake, they'll be what? They'll be saved. It's important to note because bronze represents what? Judgment. God's trying to tell the people, you've sinned. And because you've sinned, you deserve what? Judgment. But if you look, if you gaze upon another, he can take your judgment. The snake will take your judgment. It represents judgment. And so the people looked on the snake and they are what? They're saved. Look at John chapter 12, verse 30. This is after God had spoken. Well, verse 28 says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. And he says, I, God says, I have glorified it. We'll glorify it again. And the crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said the angel had spoken to him. 
They had ears to hear, but they weren't listening. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for what? Judgment to come upon this world. What metal represents judgment? Bronze. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but when, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to what? Myself. Look what it says next. John tells us, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death is that? It's going to be lifted up. That was the phrase of that day for crucifixion is, hey, Joe Bob is going to get lifted up on Friday. And people didn't say, oh, wow, yeah, people are going to put him on his shoulders. No, it meant he was going to be crucified. That's kind of the vernacular. The, the slang of that day was just, you know, hey, Jesus is lifted up. So what Jesus is saying is he's telling them, I'm going to be lifted up, but when I am lifted up, when I'm put on a pole, I'm going to what? Draw all men to myself. I am going to take the judgment that is deserved upon mankind. I am taking the judgment of God upon my life, his wrath. And when mankind will see that I am the one who will be judged for their sin, I will draw what? Men to myself. You see, he said, the time for judgment is now come. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. Really, from that point there, so much, so much is accomplished. Now mankind either accepts him or rejects him. One brings eternal life, one, one way brings eternal death. But Jesus says, time for judgment has come. The reality of mankind is going to be seen. And Jesus can say this. Jesus essentially is saying, I'm the snake in the wilderness. He's saying, I'm the bronze snake. I don't know how many people caught it back then. But he's trying to say, whoever looks upon me will be what? Saved. John 3, 16, right? Whoever believes and puts their face and casts their eyes upon me, that's where their salvation is going to lie. Because all men deserve judgment. But the whosoevers will put their faith in Jesus. Say, I allow, my, I allow Jesus to take the judgment of God that is deserved upon my life. And I trust that what Jesus has done in my place saves me from my sin. His body now, his life, it's a veil that I walk into to come into the presence of God. Do you know why we can come into the Holy of Holies, by the way? Because we are sinless. Sinful man can't a holy God can't stand in front of sin and not judge it. That's why we have a great high priest who now sits at the right hand of God, signifying what? Power and authority. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, now go and make what? It means go give birth to little Christians. But I have a problem making babies. What about new believers, disciples, whether they're 10 years old or 80 years old? Go and make what? Disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's amazing what God has put together here for us. We should understand. Give me just a couple more minutes here.
Look at Ephesians with me real quick. It's Ephesians 2. We should all understand that but by the grace of God, we were all those who were walking around in the courtyard and all we saw was judgment, 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 judgment all around us. There is no hope of salvation according to our own ways. And all we understood is life's not right. Paul tells us to remember this because, guys, you and I should all understand where we've come from, and we should never forget where we've come from. We are those who stood in the light of judgment of a holy and a righteous. He had the right to condemn us according to our sin, wickedness and rebellion towards him, our hatred. Scripture says, Ephesians says, we are at enmity with him. We are at war with him. And each and every person in this room, we should understand that that is the place that we stood before Christ extended his grace and his love to us. Because when we forget that, we become uh, judgmental, self-righteous. And we begin to look at other people as just foolish little, stupid little sinners. And in some aspects, we can look at people and say, they deserve hell. Anybody ever thought about that, about somebody before? That tells us, that we've forgotten the grace that has been extended to us. They deserve to just die in their sin. Don't we all? You see, the difference is simply this. We are sinners saved by grace, first and foremost. That's why I spend less time talking about religion, religious stuff, churchianity. Let's talk about the real things that matter that's actually going to bring a conversation that brings a person to, to the question of, so what do you do with your sin in light of a holy God? What would be so wrong with bringing our conversations with people that were unsure of their salvation, bringing it to that kind of a pinnacle? So what do you do, my friend, with your sin? Paul tells us this, Ephesians 2.1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, going to read this and then we're just going to close in prayer. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, how many? All of us lived among them at one time. Can you say, I'm a sinner? Do you believe it? There's another part to that. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Do you still follow some of the, some of the things of your sinful nature? Yeah, that would be called what? Sin. <laughs> You see, we're toast without grace. Like the rest, the only thing is this, sometimes we become hypocritical and we think ourselves better than other people because of God's grace on us. 
Like the rest, we were by nature objects of his what? Wrath. And here's the good news. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. It is by what? Grace that you have been saved. Did God save you as a sinner? Yeah. Did he reach down to you and your sinfulness and save you? Don't forget it. And God then raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Catch this, verse 7. This is your dwell. This is a verse I want you to dwell, maybe write a little bit about verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, he, he raises us up, he seats us with him in the heavenly realms. That's the tabernacle in heaven. Where's Jesus sit, by the way? At the right hand of God. Where are we sitting? Listen how Paul's saying this, that God, this is already work that he has accomplished. We, we don't say, I mean, he's eternal, right? So in order, he places us in Christ next to him in order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches or the incomparable riches of his what? Grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why has God saved you to show the world his grace. That's why. Did he save you because you're better looking? Because you're going to be a better servant than anybody else? We talk about, we fit right in with the Israelites, right? Verse 8. That's the verse, I I want you to see verse 7. He has saved you so that the world can say, man, if God can save you, (laughs) he can save me. That's why Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. There is nobody else that could say that they were worse than Paul in their previous life without Christ. Christ killed little Christians. And this is the glory verses. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through your faith. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Meaning the faith that you had to put into Jesus, that in itself was a gift not by works, so that you can't boast about it. Verse 10, for you are God's what? If you're in Christ, you are a what? New creation. For we are God, you are God's workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus. All things were created through him and for him, by him. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, meaning you are a new person in Christ. And you've been created to do what? Good works. A man comes to Jesus and he says, what must we do to do the works of God? Love God, love people. Loving God, loving people doesn't mean just being nice to them and not cutting them off on the road or letting them in when they're going to cut you off. Being nice to people is being the expression of God's grace to them. That's the work of God. Study the life of Jesus with great intensity and you'll find what the work of God is. Jesus says, my father's working to this day and I too will work. Doesn't matter if it's a Sabbath or not. I'm going to be doing his work. Create in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared, catch this, 
which God prepared when? In advance for you, for us to do. May you be challenged this week. As you hear the word, you see the plan of the Father. He's revealing himself from Genesis to Revelation. We see his plan is to be with mankind. That's his desire. He desires to redeem. Set in silver, right? His whole plan is set into redemption. And he's done all that by his grace, not by our works, so that we would become an expression to a lost and dying world, a world in darkness that does not understand light, that we would become the light of the world, an expression of God's grace. That we are no better. We are just saved by grace. If your mindset is off from that a little bit, that you think that you're better than somebody who has alternative lifestyle or somebody who's stuck in drugs or pornography or whatever it may be, if you think that you're better than them, you need to come to Christ and accept his grace and his salvation upon your life. Because the matter in which you judge another person is a standard in which God's going to judge you. Guys, we're all in the courtyard. We were all staring at the bronze around us. We all now understand judgment was due us. But inside the veil, there's the foundation of redemption, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand.